Human Nature and Conduct, An Introduction to Social Psychology, published in 1922 by John Dewey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by William Jones. The book begins with this introduction by John Dewey. Proverb. Give a dog a bad name and hang him. Human nature has been the dog of professional moralists, and consequences accord with this proverb. Men's nature has been regarded with suspicion, with fear, with sour looks, and sometimes with enthusiasm for its possibilities, but only when these were placed in contrast with its actualities. Human nature has appeared to be so evilly disposed that the business of morality was to prune and curb it. It would be thought better of if it could be replaced by something else. It has been supposed that morality would be quite superfluous were it not for the inherent weakness, bordering on depravity, of human nature. Some writers with a more genial conception have attributed the current blackening to theologians who have thought to honor the divine by disparaging the human. Theologians have doubtless taken a gloomier view of man than have pagans and secularists. But this explanation doesn't take us far. For, after all, these theologians are themselves human, and they would have been without influence if the human audience had not somehow responded to them. Morality is largely concerned with controlling human nature. When we are attempting to control anything, we are acutely aware of what resists us. So moralists were led, perhaps, to think of human nature as evil because of its reluctance to yield to control, its rebelliousness under the yoke. But this explanation only raises another question. Why did morality set up rules so foreign to human nature? The ends it insisted upon, the regulations it imposed, were, after all, outgrowths of human nature. Why then was human nature so averse to them? Moreover, rules can be obeyed and ideals realized only as they appeal to something in human nature and awaken in it an active response. So moral principles that exalt themselves by degrading human nature are in effect committing suicide or else they involve human nature in unending civil war and treat it as a hopeless mess of contradictory forces. We are forced, therefore, to consider the nature and origin of that control of human nature with which morals has been occupied. And the fact which is forced upon us when we raise this question is the existence of classes. Control has been vested in an oligarchy. Indifference to regulation has grown in the gap which separates the ruled from the rulers. Parents, priests, chiefs, social censors have supplied aims, aims which were foreign to those upon whom they were imposed, to the young, laymen, and ordinary folk. A few have given and administered rule, and the masses have in a passable fashion and with reluctance obeyed. Everybody knows that good children are those who make as little trouble as possible for their elders, 
and since most of them cause a good deal of annoyance they must be naughty by nature generally speaking good people have been those who did what they were told to do and lack of eager compliance is a sign of something wrong in their nature but no matter how much men in authority have turned moral rules into an agency of class supremacy any theory which attributes the origin of rule to deliberate design is false to take advantage of conditions after they have come into existence is one thing to create them for the sake of an advantage to accrue is quite another thing we must go back to the bare fact of social division into superior and inferior to say that accident produced social conditions is to perceive they were not produced by intelligence lack of understanding of human nature is the primary cause of disregard for it lack of insight always ends in despising or else unreasoned admiration when men had no scientific knowledge of physical nature they either passively submitted to it or sought to control it magically what cannot be understood cannot be managed intelligently it has to be forced into subjection from without the opaqueness of human nature to reason is equivalent to a belief in its intrinsic irregularity hence a decline in the authority of social oligarchy was accompanied by a rise of scientific interest in human nature this means that the make-up and working of human forces afford a basis for moral ideas and ideals our science of human nature in comparison with physical sciences is rudimentary and morals which are concerned with the health efficiency and happiness of a development of human nature are correspondingly elementary these pages are a discussion of some phases of the ethical change involved in positive respect for human nature when the latter is associated with scientific knowledge we may anticipate the general nature of this change through considering the evils which have resulted from severing morals from the actualities of human physiology and psychology there is a pathology of goodness as well as of evil that is of that sort of goodness which is nurtured by this separation the badness of good people for the most part recorded only in fiction is the revenge taken by human nature for the injuries heaped upon it in the name of morality in the first place morals cut off from the positive roots in human nature is bound to be mainly negative practical emphasis falls on avoidance escape of evil upon not doing things observing prohibitions negative morals assume as many forms as there are types of temperament subject to it in its commonest form is the protective coloration of a neutral respectability and insipidity of character for one man who thanks god that he is not as other men there are a thousand to offer thanks that they are as other men sufficiently as others are to escape attention absence of social blame is the usual mark of goodness for it shows that evil has been avoided blame is most readily averted by being so much like everybody else that one passes unnoticed conventional morality is a drab morality in which the only fatal thing is to be conspicuous if there be flavor left in it then some natural traits have somehow escaped being subdued 
To be so good as to attract notice is to be priggish, too good for this world. The same psychology that brands the convicted criminal as forever a social outcast makes it the part of a gentleman not to obtrude virtues noticeably upon others. The Puritan is never popular, not even in a society of Puritans. In case of a pinch, the mass prefer to be good fellows rather than to be good men. Polite vice is preferable to eccentricity and ceases to be vice. Morals that professedly neglect human nature end by emphasizing those qualities of human nature that are most commonplace and average. They exaggerate the herd instinct to conformity. Professional guardians of morality who have been exacting with respect to themselves have accepted avoidance of conspicuous evil as enough for the masses. One of the most instructive things in all human history is a system of concessions, tolerances, mitigations, and reprieves which the Catholic Church, with its official supernatural morality, has devised for the multitude. Elevation of the spirit above everything natural is tempered by organized leniency for the frailties of flesh. To uphold an aloof realm of strictly ideal realities is admitted to be possible only for a few. Protestantism, except in its most zealous forms, has accomplished the same result by a sharp separation between religion and morality, in which a higher justification by faith disposes at one stroke of daily lapses into the gregarious morals of average conduct. There are always ruder, forceful natures which cannot tame themselves to the required level of colorless conformity. To them, conventional morality appears as an organized futility. Though they are usually unconscious of their own attitude, since they are heartily in favor of morality for the mass, as making it easier to manage them. Their only standard is success, putting things over, getting things done. Being good is to them practically synonymous with ineffectuality. And accomplishment, achievement, is its own justification. They know by experience that much is forgiven to those who succeed, and they leave goodness to the stupid, to those whom they qualify as boobs. Their gregarious nature finds sufficient outlet in the conspicuous tribute they pay to all established institutions as guardians of ideal interests, and in their denunciation of all who openly defy conventionalized ideals. Or they discover that they are the chosen agents of a higher morality, and walk subject to specially ordained laws. Hypocrisy, in the sense of a deliberate covering up of a will to evil by loud-voiced protestations of virtue, is one of the rarest occurrences. But the combination in the same person of an intensely executive nature with a love of popular approval is bound, in the face of conventional morality, to produce what the critical term hypocrisy. Another reaction to the separation of morals from human nature is a romantic glorification of natural impulse as something superior to all moral claims. There are those who lack the persistent force of the executive will to break through conventions and to use them for their own purposes, but who unite sensitiveness with intensity of desire. Fastening upon the conventional element in morality, they hold that all morality is a conventionality hampering to the development of individuality. 
although appetites are the commonest things in human nature the least distinctive or individualized they identify unrestraint in satisfaction of appetite with free realization of individuality they treat subjection to passion as a manifestation of freedom in the degree in which it shocks the bourgeois the urgent need for a transvaluation of morals is caricatured by the notion that an avoidance of the avoidances of conventional morals constitutes positive achievement while the executive type keeps its eye on actual conditions so as to manipulate them this school abrogates objective intelligence in behalf of sentiment and withdraws into little coteries of emancipated souls there are others who take seriously the idea of morals separated from the ordinary actualities of humanity and who attempt to live up to it some become engrossed in spiritual egotism they are preoccupied with the state of their character concerned for the purity of their motives and the goodness of their souls the exaltation of conceit which sometimes accompanies this absorption can produce a corrosive inhumanity which exceeds the possibilities of any other known form of selfishness in other cases persistent preoccupation with the thought of an ideal realm breeds morbid discontent with surroundings or induces a futile withdrawal into an inner world where all facts are fair to the eye the needs of actual conditions are neglected or dealt with in a half-hearted way because in the light of the ideal they are so mean and sordid to speak of evil to strive seriously for change shows a low mind or again the ideal becomes a refuge an asylum a way of escape from tiresome responsibilities in varied ways men come to live in two worlds one the actual the other the ideal some are tortured by the sense of their irreconcilability others alternate between the two compensating for the strains of renunciation involved in membership in the ideal realm by pleasurable excursions into the delights of the actual if we turn from concrete effects upon character to theoretical issues we single out the discussion regarding freedom of will as typical of the consequences that come from separating morals from human nature men are wearied with bootless discussions and anxious to dismiss it as a metaphysical subtlety but nevertheless it contains within itself the most practical of all moral questions the nature of freedom and the means of its achieving the separation of morals from human nature leads to a separation of human nature in its moral aspects from the rest of nature and from ordinary social habits and endeavors which are found in business civic life the run of companionships and recreations these things are thought of at most as places where moral notions need to be applied not as places where moral ideas are to be studied and moral energies generated in short the severance of morals from human nature ends by driving morals inwards from the public open out of doors air and light of day into the obscurities and privacies of an inner life the significance of the traditional discussion of free will is that it reflects precisely a separation of moral activity from nature and the public life of men 
one has to turn from the moral theories to the general human struggle for political economic and religious liberty for freedom of thought speech assemblage and creed to find significant reality in the conception of freedom of will then one finds himself out of the stiflingly close atmosphere of an inner consciousness and in the open-air world the cost of confining moral freedom to an inner region is the almost complete severance of ethics from politics and economics the former is regarded as summed up in edifying exhortations and the latter as connected with the arts of expediency separated from larger issues of good in short there are two schools of social reform one bases itself on the notion of a morality which springs from an inner freedom something mysteriously cooped up within personality it asserts that the only way to change institutions is for men to purify their own hearts and that when this has been accomplished change of institutions will follow of itself the other school denies the existence of any such inner power and in so doing conceives that it has denied all moral freedom that men are made what they are by the forces of the environment that human nature is purely malleable and that till institutions are changed nothing can be done clearly this leaves the outcome as hopeless as does an appeal to inner rectitude and benevolence for it provides no leverage for change of environment it throws us back upon accident usually disguised as a necessary law of history or evolution and trust to some violent change symbolized by civil war to usher in an abrupt millennium well there is an alternative to being pinned in between these two theories we can recognize that all conduct is interaction between elements of human nature and the environment natural and social then we shall see that progress proceeds in two ways and that freedom is found in that kind of interaction which maintains an environment in which human desire and choice count for something there are in truth forces in man as well as without him while they are infinitely frail in comparison with exterior forces yet they may have the support of a foreseen and contriving intelligence when we look at the problem as one of an adjustment to be intelligently attained the issue shifts from within personality to an engineering issue the establishment of arts of education and social guidance the idea persists that there is something materialistic about natural science and that morals are degraded by having anything seriously to do with material things if a sect should arise proclaiming that men ought to purify their lungs completely before they ever drew a breath it ought to win many adherents from professed moralists for the neglect of sciences that deal specifically with facts of natural and social environment leads to a sidetracking of moral forces into an unreal privacy of an unreal self it is impossible to say how much of the remedial suffering of the world is due to the fact that physical science is looked upon as merely physical it is impossible to say how much of the unnecessary slavery of the world is due to the conception 
that moral issues can be settled within conscience or human sentiment apart from consistent study of facts and applications of specific knowledge in industry law and politics outside of manufacturing and transportation science gets its chance in war these facts perpetuate war and the hardest most brutal side of modern industry each sign of disregard for the moral potentialities of physical science drafts the conscience of mankind away from concern with the interactions of man and nature which must be mastered if freedom is to be a reality it diverts intelligence to anxious preoccupation with the unrealities of a purely inner life or strengthens reliance upon outbursts of sentimental affection the masses swarm to the occult for assistance the cultivated smile contemptuously they might smile as the saying goes out of the other side of their mouths if they realized how recourse to the occult exhibits the practical logic of their own beliefs for both rest upon a separation of moral ideas and feelings from knowledgeable facts of life man and the world it is not pretended that a moral theory based upon realities of human nature and a study of the specific connections of these realities with those of physical science would do away with moral struggle and defeat it would not make the moral life as simple a matter as winning one's way along a well-lighted boulevard all action is an invasion of the future of the unknown conflict and uncertainty are the ultimate traits but morals based upon concern with facts and deriving guidance from knowledge of them would at least locate the points of effective endeavor and would focus available resources upon them it would put an end to the impossible attempt to live in two unrelated worlds it would destroy fixed distinction between the human and the physical as well as that between the moral and the industrial and political a morals based upon study of human nature instead of upon disregard for it would find the facts of man continuous with those of the rest of nature and would thereby ally ethics and physics and biology it would find the nature and activities of one person coterminous with those of other human beings and therefore link ethics with the study of history sociology law and economics such a morals would not automatically solve moral problems nor resolve perplexities but it would enable us to state problems in such forms that action could be courageously and intelligently directed to their solution it would not assure us against failure but it would render failure a source of instruction it would not protect us against the future emergence of equally serious moral difficulties but it would enable us to approach the always recurring troubles with a fund of growing knowledge which would add significant values to our conduct even when we overtly failed as we should continue to do until the integrity of morals with human nature and of both with the environment is recognized we shall be deprived of the aid of past experience to cope with the most acute and deep problems of life accurate and extensive knowledge will continue to operate only in dealing with purely technical problems the intelligent acknowledgment of the continuity of 
nature, man and society, will alone secure a growth of morals which will be serious without being fanatical, aspiring without sentimentality, adapted to reality without conventionality, sensible without taking the form of calculation of profits, and idealistic without being romantic. End of the Introduction to Human Nature and Conduct by John Dewey